I get the same question every year, and every year I'm at a complete loss. I have no idea what I want for Christmas. Maybe you're not with me. Maybe you know exactly what you want for Christmas. Uh, but that's not everybody. Uh, I looked it up, and I think lots of people feel the same way as me. They don't like answering the question. And in fact, I, find out, I found out that a lot of people try and get out of the question. They, they try and get away from it. Uh, and so, in order to get away from the question, they give the most useless answer of all time, apparently. I've heard one or two people say it before, and I looked it up. Apparently, it's kind of a thing. When asked, what do you want for Christmas? They'll say, world peace. Uh, have you heard that before? I hope so. I, I told that to my wife, and she thought I was crazy. She's like, I've never heard that, but... Okay, so when people give you that answer, it's kind of a terrible answer, isn't it? It's kind of useless. I don't know what you can do with that. You're thinking more of something in the $20 range that you could squeeze into a stocking, and then you get the answer, world peace. So first of all, how am I supposed to get you world peace? How could I possibly do that? But secondly, what even do you mean exactly by world peace? Do you just mean that you want all wars to stop? You want the Russians to pack up and go home and the Palestinians and Israelis to settle down and shake hands once and for all. Uh, like Something like Christmas in World War I, maybe you've heard this story, uh, when the soldiers climbed out of their trenches and they sang Silent Night together and they, they played a good round of soccer. Uh, a ceasefire, but just forever. Is that what you're thinking of when you ask for world peace? Because it might surprise you to find out that once in world history, there was a sort of world peace in this sense. There was a nearly global ceasefire lasting uh, for a number of decades, even a couple of centuries. It was called the Pax Romana. It came about through a man who's mentioned at the beginning of our text today. Uh, his name is Caesar Augustus. He was the emperor of the Roman Empire, and he was the most powerful ruler the world had ever known, ruling over an empire bigger than the world had ever known. An empire that you can picture in your mind. It covered almost all, of, almost all of Europe, most of the Middle East, the entire northern edge of Africa, and even beyond that. And so Augustus's reign started the Pax Romana, a time of Roman peace, unprecedented peace. And there wasn't much fighting, simply because pretty much everyone had already been conquered. And so... Uh, if you study that period, what you'll see, there was, in a sense, kind of world peace, right? Everybody subjugated by one emperor. If ever there was a chance at true peace, it seems like this would have been it in history. But it didn't last. Before long, Augustus died. As you might know, if you know Roman history at all, uh, a couple of increasingly corrupt and insane emperors took over. And the Roman Empire fell apart spectacularly and war broke out everywhere. And even for the few years of the Pax Romana, we have to admit, they didn't really have peace, did they? Sure, there wasn't a whole lot of war going on, but there were chains and slavery and Rome through, ruled largely through fear and death threats. And so even though there were no wars, uh, or not many wars, as we heard a couple weeks ago, that's not true peace. True peace, peace that we wish for, that we long for. It's a lot more than just not actively fighting, isn't it? What we really want is freedom and prosperity and flourishing. 
And in human history, we've never got anywhere close to that, have we? True peace like this seems like it will never happen. The closest we got was maybe Augustus. But even that was far from true peace. And so for those who actually say that they want world peace for Christmas, it doesn't seem like it's going to happen anytime soon. But this Christmas, let's turn our attention back 2,000 years ago to the time of Augustus, but not so much to Augustus himself. Because while Augustus was working on bringing world peace and ultimately failing, there was a divine king in heaven who was also working on a plan for world peace. And he was succeeding and is succeeding today. So this Christmas, let's marvel together at the best gift ever given, the true desire of our hearts, the one that the Lord gave to us on Christmas. So we'll study today from Luke 2, the people's peace. And we'll see it in two parts, two really easy to remember parts. First of all, we'll see the people, and then we'll see the peace. And so I wonder this morning if you've ever had really big news to share, really exciting news. Maybe like an engagement. Some of you have been sharing that news recently. Or maybe you got into a college or you, you, you got a new house. Or uh, maybe uh, you or, or your wife, you got pregnant for the first time. You remember what you wanted to do. You really wanted to share the news, right? Uh, it can be a lot of fun planning when to tell people and how to tell people and who you're going to tell first about this life-changing news that you've got hidden in your pocket. I remember it well when uh, we got engaged and when we had our first child as well, just carefully planning as best we could who would find out and how and when. And it can be a little bit difficult because you can give yourself away, can't you? You're, you're just bursting with joy. You're so excited to share the news. You can't wait to tell people. Well, in this passage, on the first Christmas, we actually see something kind of similar. But what we see is not just a person, not just a couple bursting with joy. Instead, what we read about, what we just sang about over and over again, is a time when heaven itself seemed to be bursting with joy. Heaven itself had great news to share. In this passage on the first Christmas, uh, there's not news of a pregnancy or engagement, but of a spectacular birth. And so think about it for a moment, because you've all heard this, song, this story so many times. But truly think about it. There was something astounding that happened on this first Christmas. Something that should take our breath away, even though we've heard it so many times before. The God of heaven came down to earth. God the Son came down in the flesh as a baby. Mary, his mother, held God in her arms. What a truth! It should blow us away. There's only one reasonable response. Awe-filled joy. And at the birth, heaven itself does seem to burst with joy, doesn't it? And God himself plans just when he will share the news and how he will share the news and who he's going to share it with. We see in our passage when he shares it. It's almost immediately. The, 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 his messengers come with the message that today, this day, a child is born. We also see how he shares it. It's shared in spectacular fashion. An angel comes with the message. Then a whole host of angels behind him, saying, or perhaps even singing, glory to God in the highest, as the glory of the Lord shines around. What a scene. 
And what a celebration and what on a miraculous birth announcement. What an event that we're remembering today. But what struck me this past week, and I hope it strikes you too, when we're studying this passage that's so familiar, uh, it's not so much when God announced the birth of his son or how God announced it, but what really strikes us in this passage is who the Lord chose to announce it to. If you have a great announcement, who do you want to tell first? Usually those closest to you, those most important to you, those you love and care deeply about. You want them to know and sharing your joy. You can hardly keep it from them. And that's just for us lowly, regular people. But maybe think back to Augustus for a minute. Imagine if he had a child. There's probably protocols in place for who the emperor is supposed to notify if he has a son. Uh, who would be expected to know first those important to him, like family and friends, sure. But likely other kings and governors and rulers should be notified as well. If Augustus had a child, who do you think would be the last to know? Probably the nobodies. The random regular citizens. People out in the field tending for animals. Regular people that Augustus honestly probably couldn't really care less about. Well, when God finally sends his Messiah on that first Christmas, the seed of the woman promised so long ago, the one who would crush the head of the serpent, the one who would free us from our sin and slavery for good, who does God decide that he's going to tell first? A Savior is born, heaven bursts uh, onto the earth with excitement, and God bypasses the political leaders, the kings and emperors and governors. He bypasses even the religious leaders. Goes right by the, the synagogues and the scribes and Pharisees and the high priest. Instead, in verse 8, what do we see? God sends angels to share the good news and who he shares it with first. Those he wants to know right away are some shepherds watching over some sheep in a nearby field. Isn't that amazing? God just wants some regular people to share in his joy, to know the good news. And actually, what we should realize this morning is that these people aren't even just regular people. They're shepherds. When uh, his son, our Savior, is born, God delights to tell shepherds. It might surprise you to find out that shepherds probably would have been mentioned with disdain back then. They were actually a rung or two below regular people on the social ladder. Of course, shepherds were just common physical laborers. If you do physical labor and you want to picture yourself in this story, then picture yourself in grimy work clothes. But of course, back then, uh, they didn't have washing machines or things like we have. They were probably much dirtier uh, than we even would usually be. These shepherds probably would have been quite poor, probably dirty and sweaty, smelling a lot like mud and like sheep. And so shepherds were common laborers, but more than that, they were seen as lower than regular common workers. A lot of people were common workers back then, but shepherds in particular were marginalized. They were seen as physically unclean because they were literally dirty, but they were also considered largely spiritually unclean. Their work precluded them from a lot of the, the normal uh, religious ceremonies of the day, and so they were looked down upon for missing those things. And actually, shepherds, I don't know why, but they just weren't considered very trustworthy. People didn't want shepherds around. 
Uh, I found out this week that shepherds weren't allowed to testify as witnesses in court. No one trusted a shepherd. And so, this shows what people thought of shepherds back then. But brothers and sisters, the good news is, who cares what people think about shepherds? What does God think about shepherds? We see in this passage that God views them as worthy, or at least as worthy as anybody else, to receive the good news first. The good news of a Savior the good news of Jesus Christ. And God gives it to them immediately. He gives it to them in spectacular fashion. He gives it to them first. And this is who God counts as worthy of this news. Who he wants to share his joy with first. And that is really good news for us, isn't it? Because here, right after Jesus had arrived, God gives us a clear picture of who God's kingdom is for and what his kingdom is all about. This king, just born, He's not here looking for riches or outward importance or status or anything like that. He's not just here for impressive people or even just here for holy people. He's come not just for those who seem to be worthy of him, but he's come for those who desperately need him and God is excited to share the news with them. He's come for all kinds of people. Rich people, sure, but poor people too. Important people, but insignificant ones in human eyes as well. What a God that we have. And so just imagine the scene that we just sung about over and over again and kind of go over our heads because we're so familiar with it. But just picture it for a second. A lowly group of shepherds looked down upon by the general public on a regular night, probably tired, probably bored, sitting in a field somewhere watching over some sheep. And it was quiet, it was calm, and it was dark. And then suddenly, in the middle of the darkness, a great light. Instead of peace and quiet, suddenly there was chaos. The shepherds looked at the sky and they saw an angel and the glory of the Lord shining all around them. And immediately they're told, don't be afraid. Instead, listen to a message from God himself for you. Regular people, despised people like you. A message of good news, of great joy, the angel says. A message about the arrival of the long-awaited Messiah, the one who could save God's people. And then a whole army of angels appears. And this great, terrifying army of God himself comes with a message of peace. The army comes with a message of peace. The message of the birth of God's own child. And these people, the shepherds, were the first ones God wanted to tell. And they must have been left wondering, God is doing something amazing. And this God wants me to know. This God picked me to know first. And then, as they heard heard the message that God's son, the great Messiah and king, had been born. And he had been born in David's city. So think about that for a moment. The city of David. Well, that's the great city Jerusalem, right? The city of David. That's what it's always called. And that's a a good and proper choice for a king, isn't it? That's the marvelous city where David ruled from. But wait a second. That's not what the angels are talking about at all. He's talking about the other city of David. Jerusalem was the great city of King David, the marvelous, beautiful place where David ruled from. 
But God sends his newborn son to the other city of David. The city of David the shepherd boy. The quiet, lonely little town of Bethlehem where David grew up in obscurity where no one really knew his name. God sends his boy, his Messiah there. And not to the largest, most beautiful house in this little town either. But rather, God sends his son to be born in a stable and to sleep in a food trough. That's where God sends Jesus. An extremely humble place, the most humble of towns. Again, what amazing news this is for the shepherds and for us. I think we can gloss over this. But imagine for a second if Jesus had been born in a palace in Jerusalem. When the shepherds got the news of the Messiah being born, uh, I'm sure they still would have been happy. But how would they have felt about this? For example, would, would they have gone to this Messiah? Would they have gone to the big city? And even if they would go to the big city, would they go into a palace? Who would let in some dirty, smelly shepherds to go see the newborn king in a great palace? If Augustus had had a son, could these shepherds have gotten anywhere near him? Could they have even gotten on the property? Probably not. But by God's grace, Jesus was born in extremely humble circumstances. And in this way, God showed that he was truly the Savior for all people. He wasn't born far off, as though he was way too good for us. Well, of course, you better remember, this baby was way too good for us, wasn't he? But he wasn't born that way. Nevertheless, God, it pleased God to give this baby right to us. We're told in verse 12 he was wrapped in swaddling cloths, just like a regular baby born to a poor family. Because this is a different kind of king we've come to worship this morning. He's the kind of king that all people, even shepherds, even you and me, need to know about. The kind of king that shepherds and you and me should feel comfortable approaching because God gave him to us. In verse 15 or 16, we can see about these shepherds. We can imagine these grown men just filled with excitement about the, the birth of this baby. They're excited like children on Christmas morning. And so they go in haste to see this child. And they're so excited about this birth announcement, this, this baby we're told who is born unto Mary. Except for we're not told he was born unto Mary, are we? That's a normal birth announcement. This is a spectacular birth announcement. What do the angels say to the shepherds? What do the angels say to you and me in verse 11? This birth announcement is about a baby born unto you. This baby is born unto you. Not so much unto Mary. That doesn't matter as much. This child's here for you and for me. Regular people, God's own son. What child is this? What is going on? This child has come to being regular, unworthy people like us. Peace. That's our second point. The angel said that this was good news of great joy for regular Joes. And even worse, for shepherds. The news that, this is news that brings glory to God and peace on earth among God's people. And I once heard another pastor give a really beautiful illustration of this joy and this peace that comes to us on Christmas Day. Maybe you remember this story that he, was tell, uh, that he was talking about. A story from 2018 that was all over the news. Uh, in Thailand, in 2018, 
there was a boys' soccer team. And their young coach decided uh, with the soccer team to explore a cave after soccer practice. You remember that? When they went into the cave to explore, a monsoon came. The entrance of the cave was quickly covered with water. Just imagine for a second the boys' terror when they were suddenly trapped inside. The rain kept on falling. And the boys needed to crawl and climb and pull themselves deeper and deeper into the cave as the water kept on rising. And eventually the group was trapped four kilometers into the cave. It seemed like these children, these boys, were doomed. Imagine this from their perspective. There they were, sitting in a dark, cold cave. As far as they knew, no one knew where they were. They barely knew where they were. Then they sat there, waiting in the pitch darkness for an hour, and then for four hours and ten hours. For ten days, these boys sat in that cave, hopelessly, not knowing if they would survive, probably suspecting they wouldn't, not knowing if anyone was even coming for them, if anyone would even know where to start looking for them. Until suddenly, on day number ten, there was movement. There was a light. A diver had swam through the tunnels and found them. Can you picture for a second these boys' immense joy? Their utter relief. And this diver came with good news. A very big message for them. News that we who were listening on the outside, on the actual news, what we heard all, or what we knew all along. The boys weren't completely alone. Not really. Just outside of the cave, and even searching through the cave, were many people who knew where they were, and many people who cared about them. And so the diver came to them with this message. You're safe. The diver came with this message. An international team of over 10,000 people is working night and day to get you out of here. Thailand's Navy SEALs are coming for you, and they're not going to stop till they find you. Over a hundred of the best divers in the world have flown out here to come and get you out of this cave. All of the best diving equipment and the best divers from around the world, from China, Australia, Europe, even Vancouver, and many other places, they all rushed over here as soon as they could to help you. Pumps and drainage specialists have come from all over the world, even from India and from noted drainage specialists, the Netherlands. And they're working night and day to reduce the water levels. They're going to get you out. Over a hundred government agencies are on standby monitoring the situation. 900 police officers, 2,000 soldiers, 10 police helicopters, and more. The message is, yes, you're trapped. Yes, on your own, you would be in serious trouble. But you're not on your own. We've got the best people in the whole world working on it. And I assure you, you're going to be just fine. Imagine the joy and relief of these boys, even though they weren't out quite yet. And then realizing your heart, brothers and sisters, realizing your very soul, that this should be just a faint picture of the shepherd's joy and our joy on Christmas Day. We were in a much worse situation and our joy should be so much deeper. In a very real sense, on our own, we're in a more dire situation than these boys were in. We've heard about this the last couple weeks. The greatest problem in the world is that we have rebelled against the God of the universe himself. That's the situation we're in. 
As we heard about two weeks ago, we're trapped in darkness. We're oppressed and blinded by our sin and by the devil. And we're in a war we could never win on our own. We heard about that we declared war with God himself. We heard that in Psalm 2. By nature, we were enemies and rebels. And on our own, we're hopelessly lost and trapped in a situation like a cave. A situation we cannot possibly solve. Our time is running out, and it seems utterly hopeless. But then, Christmas comes. The first Christmas day, heaven comes down to earth. An angel bursts onto the scene with this incredible message, even for ordinary people like me and you, even for shepherds, even for unworthy people. Wonderful news, an incredible message. A birth message that God can't wait to share. Good news of great joy for regular unworthy people like us. And we hear this message, this baby is born unto you. God himself knows about you. The God of the world cares about you. The God of the universe has sent a savior for you. And you know he sent the best of the best. The God of the universe for you and for me has sent his own rescue team. A rescue team of just one. A rescue team consisting of his very own son. Romans 5 gives us a picture of the heart of God. Just how big God's heart is. When we were still enemies, we read in Romans 5, God sent his rescue team, so to speak. A rescue team far greater than all the governments in the world could muster. His rescue team of one. And he sent his one and only son to save us and to bring us home. He committed himself to bringing us home. We read in Romans 5 verse 1 that now we have peace with God. And this child began, as we read today, in an incredibly humble state. He was born, he had a regular birth. He wasn't attended to like a king, but instead he was laid in a manger, not one that looks like a crib anyway. In a tiny little manger, probably made of stone. Hey, he was, uh, this was just the start. This boy would grow up and this boy would be absolutely perfect morally. But yet, this boy would be hated. He would be cursed. He'd be rejected by the world that he came to save. And this was just the first act of a life full of being humbled. A life full of suffering. A life full of not having a proper place to lay his head. Eventually, this child would grow up and he would be publicly mocked. His perfect body born this Christmas day would be mangled beyond recognition for my sake and for yours. In the time of this child's greatest need, when he was trapped in darkness and despair, he would be left to face it alone. Of his 12 friends, 10 of his friends would flee from him. One of them would deny him again and again and again. And one of them would betray him. And even God the Father would turn his face away from him in his need. This was our very different king. And this is the different way that he was committed to rescuing you, to rescuing me. By this life of suffering, he would bring us true peace. Not just a lack of fighting kind of peace, but true and abundant life in his arms. This king will rule and transform the world with perfect peace. But first, for now, he rules and transforms our hearts and our families and more and more on this earth. And so when you're with this rescuer, this Lord and Savior, this King, then when you have true and lasting peace, 
divine peace. Peace that the Apostle Paul calls in Philippians 4. Peace that transcends all understanding. In Christ, we have a peace that we can't even really understand yet. We can only begin to. And we try to understand this peace more and more. We try and live out this peace with others and with God and even with ourselves. But our comfort is that in Christ, once and for all, we have this peace. This rescue team's not going back empty-handed. And there are two possible responses to this Christmas story. We see them hinted at in our text. And the first one is pretty bleak. We can see that this Savior comes down. And there's just this ominous sign. That right at the beginning, he can't find any room. He can't find a place to stay. We can see throughout Jesus' life that will happen time and time again. Bethlehem rejects the Messiah out of ignorance. But later, many others would reject him out of anger or jealousy or or hate or whatever other reason. They wouldn't find room for the Savior. But many, from every tongue and tribe and nation, by God's grace, will receive this rescue team. They will receive this news of peace offered to the unworthy on this Christmas day. God offers this gift of peace freely and with great joy. He's excited to tell those who need it about it. He invites us and calls to us to share in this peace and joy. And we can see that so clearly in these lowly shepherds. And we see in them the proper response, the response we should try and model. What do these shepherds do? Do they say, oh, we'll go right after our shift? No, it seems that they drop everything and they go. They go straight to Jesus Christ. And after they go uh, him themselves, then we see in verse 17, then they go and tell everything that they saw to everyone they meet. And then finally we see in verse 20, these shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, all that had been told to them. Now, brothers and sisters, this Christmas, let you and me also make room for Jesus in our day, in our week, in our lives. Let's pray that Jesus might rule in our hearts, that this King might teach us, that he might save us, that he might transform us, and teach us to dwell in his peace that surpasses all understanding. This Christmas, let's pray that we never get distracted by physical gifts. Physical gifts are great. They can be a distraction, can't they? But let's look to this gift, the true gift of Christmas, the gift from God himself, the precious gift of his own dear son unto you, his son for you. The good news that God sees us and he cares about us deeply, more than we ever would dare hope, and he's committed to saving us and giving us peace. Because he started already with Christ's first coming, his rescue team's begun their mission, but God's not done yet. Soon Christ will come again on the clouds of heaven. And when he does, he will once and for all ask, answer our, great, our greatest Christmas wish. The wish that we more and more should long for. Maybe I was too hard on people earlier when they ask for world peace. That's what we should truly desire. This thing that not even Caesar Augustus could accomplish. So this Christmas, don't ask your friends and family for world peace. They can't give it to you. They can't shove it in the stocking. But ask Jesus Christ for world peace. Peace in your hearts, peace in your household, peace over this earth, especially with his return. Amen.